Uh, friends, do keep your Bibles open so you can be sure that what I'm saying actually comes from the Bible and the uh, astute observers of your service outline among you will, will see that I'm only going to preach up to verse 22. We're not going to do the whole thing tonight. So if you see me getting toward verse 22, you're thinking, my goodness, we're not going to get home till late. Don't worry, it's all good. Let me pray. Our Lord and God, our Rock and our Redeemer, may the words of my lips and the thoughts of our hearts be acceptable in your sight to the praise and glory of Jesus. Amen. Sir Isaac Newton's very little-known fifth law of thermodynamics says that the amount of junk in someone's home will automatically expand to fill every available spare room, cupboard and drawer. And uh, we knew that our 14-year-old daughter Ruby, uh, her bedroom was a bit short on uh, storage space and was an absolute tip. So during the Christmas break, uh, we got ourselves a quarter of a tonne of Ikea flat pack wardrobe. And over two days we built it. And now, well, who knew? She's got carpet on her bedroom floor. We just thought it was like floorboards and clothes, but there's actually carpet and there is now a place for everything and everything is in its place. And that is exactly what we see in Matthew chapter 21. There is a place for everything and everything is in its place. And I want to show you this through three headings. Now, partly to prove to you through a three-point sermon with one big idea that I, I have been to more college, but more crucially, this is what Matthew wants his readers to understand. And so we're going to attack this through three headings, as you can see on your outline. God's expected king, God's unexpected king, and God's sovereign king. Matthew chapter 21 marks the beginning of the account of Jesus' last week on earth, which starts, verse 1, with Jesus approaching Jerusalem, the city of God's king. He's coming from the east, down the Mount of Olives, past the Garden of Gethsemane, across the narrow floor of the Kidron Valley, up the steep hill to the temple precinct. It's a famous story. Jesus and his followers are approaching Jerusalem for the last time, and Jesus sent two of his disciples on ahead with specific instructions about a donkey. Have you noticed that whenever Jesus sends his followers out, he never sends them alone, always in groups of two or more, always in fellowship together? I hope you're not trying to follow Jesus by yourself. I mean, you're here in church, so the easy answer is to say, oh, of course not, St Mark's is my church. And... We are thrilled that you're here. But I want to ask, have you got any deep connections with other followers of Jesus who are encouraging you, upholding you in prayer through life's challenges? Or are you more of a solitary monk? I mean, you're part of a community of faith, but essentially you're the Lone Ranger. Jesus knows nothing of that among his followers. Why don't you resolve this year to make 2023, the time you get serious about following God's King. Get yourself into one of our home groups. As Pat said, it's not too late. They've only just kicked off. Why don't you ask someone if they'll meet with you every couple of weeks or so to read the Bible together, to pray with you, to encourage you. Jesus knows nothing of Lone Ranger followers. But back to the donkey. Two disciples go on ahead. They find things exactly as Jesus said. 
Jesus' precise knowledge was either the result of his prior arrangement with the owner of the donkey or yet another example of his sovereign control of all things. What is important is that this animal is the foal of a donkey that has never been ridden. At least three times in the Old Testament, there is a call for an animal that has never worn a bridle or a yoke to be devoted to a particular divine purpose. And Zechariah 9, written 500 years before Jesus, that's 500 BC, uh, quoted by Matthew in verse 5, Zechariah predicted that the Messiah, God's chosen king who would reign in Jerusalem, would come into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. So, Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Until this moment, Jesus has walked everywhere with his disciples. For 33 years, he walked everywhere. But now, this moment, he intentionally enters Jerusalem in this way. This is Jesus' open declaration that he is the Messiah. He is God's chosen king and he has come to take his rightful place. And it is a great entry. King Jesus comes like a conquering warrior, astride his magnificent war horse, a towering white stallion. No. King Jesus comes astride a donkey, the poor man's horse. This entry into Jerusalem is Jesus' statement not only of the fact but also the character of his kingship. He is God's chosen conquering king but his victory was to be a very different looking victory. His reign, a very different reign to that of other first century monarchs and rulers. He is the servant king who did not come to be served but to serve you know that he took not a crown of gold but a crown of thorns on his head. And following after this king, well, it means emulating his character. It means giving over control of your life to him. It means being done with the need to be first and to win. The crowd isn't put off by the donkey. In fact, they know Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, and they start throwing palm fronds and their cloaks on the road ahead of Jesus. This also has its roots in the Old Testament, uh, 2 Kings chapter 9 if you're taking notes, and it represents submission of the crowd to their king. And the actions of the crowd are backed by their cries. So verse 9, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. They're shouting out parts of Psalm 118. Hosanna means God saves So what the people are saying is that Jesus is God's saving king. He is the king who saves. Now what we need to know is that for uh, first century Jews, when they heard just a, a snippet, you know, a quote or an allusion from the Old Testament, they automatically would import all the context of that little sentence into what they were thinking. And we do the same thing all the time. So a little bit of an experiment with me. What comes into your mind when I say these words? I'll be back. (laughs) Arnold Schwarzenegger, Terminator. Straight away, three words, and I've imported this whole lot of ideas and images into your head. So too, 
when parts of the Old Testament are quoted in the New Testament. Psalm 118 is a joyful song of thanksgiving that calls on all of God's people to praise God for his steadfast love, for his covenant faithfulness, for the fact that when he makes promises, he keeps every single one of them. That's what the crowd is doing and that's what Matthew wants us to see. Jesus is God's expected king, coming in love, coming to bring peace, coming to usher in God's perfect rule. It's a wonderful vision of a servant king ruling in love, not fear, exercising his sovereign power to save his people, not feather his own nest. It's a a visionary hope that the crowd gave their voice to. After three years of miracles, of challenging corrupt authority structures, of the greatest moral and ethical teaching the world has ever heard, it's no wonder the crowd that day cried Hosanna and made straight Jesus' path into Jerusalem because their long-awaited king had finally come to take his place on his throne just as they expected, just as the Old Testament predicted. Jesus, God's king, has come to God's earthly city And everything is in its place. And, as we would expect from God's expected king, verse 12, Jesus entered the temple courts. The temple courts. This was the outer court of the Gentiles. This was the place where pagans, Gentiles, non-Jews, people like you and me, could come to pray. That's why Jesus quoted Isaiah 56 in verse 13. It is written, my house will be called a house of prayer. But there was no prayer going on in God's house. Instead, it had become a money-making machine with the religious leaders extorting the very people they were supposed to serve. The outer court was being used by the currency converters to allow pilgrims to come and convert their local currency into temple coinage to pay the temple tax and to buy animals to make their sacrifice. And you can be sure that the forex rates on offer were about as favourable as the ones on offer at Sydney Airport. So the religious leaders are making money on the way in with forex, they're doing them on the temple tax and they're extorting them on inflated prices for the sacrificial animals. Jesus overturned their tables. He didn't take their money. He just stopped them doing business there in the temple court. This wasn't an uncontrolled, instinctive, hissy fit reaction of rage. This was a settled, deliberate action. And verse 12, he also overturned the benches of those selling doves. Under Old Testament law, doves were the sacrificial offering for the poor. The wealthy were required to offer bigger, more expensive animals like lambs and bulls. So the religious leaders, there in the very house of God, were extorting the poor. Jesus, consumed by jealousy for the honour of God's name and of God's house, interrupted their trade. The temple was supposed to be a place of prayer for all the nations and Matthew tells us Jesus quoted Jeremiah chapter 7 verse 11 to the Jews around him, but you, you have made it a den of robbers. Now if we think about it, A den isn't so much where the robbers do their robbing, it's their lair. It's where they feel safe. 
A robber's den is where thieves presume they are safe. The religious leaders of Jesus' day presumed they were safe. They had the temple, just like their forefathers in Jeremiah's day, and they reckoned it was their rolled gold, iron-clad guarantee against God's judgment. However, the previous verses in Jeremiah 7 were a condemnation of their forefathers, and Jesus invoked that condemnation by quoting just a small portion of this paragraph from Jeremiah 7. I'm reading from verse 9. Will you steal and murder? Commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you haven't known, and then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, we are safe, safe to do all these detestable things. Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. The temple, like the fig tree we're going to come to in verse 18, It looked the goods from a distance. But up close and personal, there was a proud presumption that those who controlled the temple were safe. They were presuming on their place in God's house. And you can see, can't you, how it's just a very short step from presuming on your own inclusion to excluding others. As soon as you think you're good enough, you're worthy enough to be in, you start deciding there are others who are not good enough not worthy enough, and you communicate to them that they have no place in God's people. That's what was happening in Jesus' day. And so Jesus judged the temple and those in it. And we know, don't we, the temple would soon be superseded as the place where the people would connect with God, pray to him, find atonement for their sins. Because Jesus has on the cross, in his body, become the way and the place and the means for people to connect with God, to pray with him, to have fellowship with him. Jesus has become the atoning sacrifice for our sins. The Jews expected their Messiah, their King, to bring judgment on their enemies. They presumed that because they had the temple, they were safe. You may think that you're safe with God because, well, just look at you. You come to church. And you don't come to just any church. You come to a church where the Bible is faithfully taught every week. You come to a church whose beloved rector is now the right-hand man to the archbishop. You come to church so you're safe. You might think that your good works are a force field protecting you from God's judgment. Or maybe you simply cannot conceive that God would ever come in judgment because you're you. You're a good person. You're doing the best you can with what you've got. You may think you're safe. Friends, it brings me absolutely no joy to say it. I I don't know you very well. We've only just started to get to know each other. But it brings me absolutely no joy to say, be warned. Jesus' unexpected coming to Jerusalem this first time is a picture of his coming again. So be warned by this first coming. And... Don't lose sight of the other thing Jesus did in the temple that day. Can you see it there in verse 14? The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. 
in the midst of his furious anger against a religious elite who were abusing those who they should have been serving, Jesus cares for those who traditionally were the weakest of all. Their healing is yet more evidence, as if we needed yet more evidence, that the Messiah is in the house. And the children were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. It was the little ones who saw the truth. Back in verse 11, after Jesus' triumphant entry, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? And the crowd answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Well, that's, that's a true answer, but it's not the whole truth. Jesus is a prophet, yes, but he is so much more. And the children in the temple that day saw that. And they declared that he is the fulfilment of the promises of God in 2 Samuel chapter 7, which predicted that one of David's descendants would be king in Jerusalem forever. The religious leaders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, they were livid in their opposition to Jesus. The next morning, verse 18, Jesus was on his way back to Jerusalem and he was hungry. He saw a fig tree on the roadside, but it was all leaves and no fruit, all sizzle and no sausage. So he said to it, May you never bear fruit again. Immediately the tree withered. Now over the years there have been some pro-fig tree activists who have taken issue with Jesus' cruelty to fig trees. Uh, Two things to say. Uh, Firstly, it's a fig tree. They are a dime a dozen in Israel. They're like a weed. And secondly... Matthew has no embarrassment at all in recounting Jesus' unexpected action here. So what's going on? This is not Jesus being a bit hangry and off his game because he skipped breakfast. This is Jesus explaining and illustrating his actions in the temple the day before. Apparently you can get up to three seasons of figs on a tree every year. And the way it works is the the fruit buds then the tree comes out in leaf. So when you see a fig tree with leaves all over it, you expect to find a couple of figs on it, but not this fig tree. You might not expect expect to find lots of fruit, but at least one or two, but not this tree. So Jesus cursed it, saying, May you never bear fruit again, and immediately it withered. In the Old Testament, the fig tree is often a metaphor to describe God's Old Testament people and their standing before God. That's why Jesus acts out a parable with this unfortunate fig tree. This fig tree, from a distance, it looked the goods. But on closer inspection, it was not as it should be. So Jesus judged it and said, it is over for you just as he had done with the temple the day before. So what do we do? What do we do to prepare for our king's second coming? Especially since there are no good works that are good enough for God. Jesus, God's sovereign king, gives us the answer in verse 22. At one level it's very simple there in verse 21. Have faith and do not doubt. The answer is to have faith in the God who saves that he will provide a rescue for you. But Jesus' words aren't as simple as that, are they? He said, 
If you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but you can also say to this mountain, go, throw yourself into the sea and it will be done. You can imagine the scene. Jesus is on the temple mount, looking east out to the Mount of Olives as he said it. Mountains will be removed from in front of you if you just have faith, if you just believe and do not doubt. And it gets better. Verse 22, if you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. Any obstacle in life, you can pray it away. Anything you want, it looks like Jesus has just cracked open the heavenly checkbook and written a blank check with your name on it. But Jesus didn't leave any blank checks. In fact, it's irresponsible to think that whatever in this verse means anything whatsoever. In the same way, a teacher might ask, is everybody here? And if you say yes, I want to know where Anthony Albanese is because you said everybody's here and I can't see the Prime Minister. Context tells us that the teacher is asking, is everybody in the class here? What Jesus means in verse 22 is that God will answer any prayer that is heartfelt and in keeping with his plans to save sinners. I know this because of the teacher example and because Jesus is alluding to Zechariah chapter 14 which describes a terrible coming day of trouble for God's people. And in response to that gra- the grave threat posed to his people This is the promise. Let me read to you from Zechariah chapter 14, verse 3. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem. And and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley with half of the mountain moving north and half moving south. You will flee by my mountain valley. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. When it looks like there is no way out, when God's people are trapped, outmanned, outgunned, outmaneuvered, backs to the wall, surrounded by their enemies, God himself will split open the Mount of Olives and make possible an escape route. God will literally move mountains to save his people. Now remember... When the disciples' remarks over the withered fig tree, Jesus' first words were, have faith. That's the context of Jesus telling us to pray for the removal of mountains. His point is that we can and we should trust God to do whatever is required to remove whatever it is that hinders people from being fruitful. Remember the fruit tree is an Old Testament metaphor, the fig tree is an Old Testament metaphor for God's people and their standing before God. So being fruitful here means being of good standing before God. And the only way you can be of good standing before God is to have faith in Him, to trust that He will remove anything that would otherwise obstruct your relationship with Him. Even if it seems impossible to you, He can clear that obstacle. And if you know your Bible, you know there is only one obstacle to a relationship with God. And that is your prideful, sinful heart. And you know that sin pays off with death. What Jesus is promising here is that God can even remove the mountain of death from your future. 
not your physical expiration, but an eternity separated from God. And he does that by forgiving your sins, by transferring them all and their deathly consequences onto Jesus, which is what he did when Jesus went to the cross. That's the grace and mercy that Pat was talking about last week. There is therefore no further need for the temple and the whole sacrificial system, which is why Jesus had no hesitation in pronouncing the end of the role of the temple in the life of God's people. And why when he died, spoiler alert, the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, making the way open for everyone into the presence of God. Jesus has become the place where our sins can be forgiven. The problem with the, 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 the Jews and the religious establishment of Jesus' day in their temple was that they were looking to their good works to keep them safe. The only way to be safe is by faith. Faith in the God who saves. Faith in his Son. That's how you follow Jesus. Giving up control of your life to him. Being done with the need to win and be first. And when you're in that space... You don't need to keep score with others. When you know the sweet joy of forgiveness in your life, you'll want to extend that to others too. I want you to be ready for the return of the King. I don't want you to be like that fig tree or the temple, from a distance looking the goods, but on closer inspection, utterly bereft of fruit. I want you to have faith in God and in his king. His king whose first coming was both expected and unexpected and whose second coming is sure and certain. And his resurrection from the grave is our guarantee that all this is true. Let me pray. Lord God, would you fight for us in our day of trouble? Would you work in our hearts to make us fruitful to you? Would our trust and worth and hope and identity be in you, the God who saves? And so we join with the crowd and we cry, Hosanna. Would you so order the affections of our hearts and the thoughts of our minds before the majesty of King Jesus that all the parts of our lives would assume their proper perspective and be in their right place? Amen. Amen. So we're going to have some Q&A. I don't know how question and answer time normally works at St Mark's. I had a guess it works well when, when someone asks coherent questions and the preacher gives a coherent answer. Um, so, yeah, um, short and to the point questions. We'll get short and to the point answers and long waffly questions. Well, we'll see how they play out. Um, if you've got a question, I just want to put your hand up and I'll get you to call out your question and we'll see how we go. Just one person at a time. Don't speak over each other. It's very rude. Yeah. Sorry, what's your name? Hey, Annalise, I'm Craig. Hi. Yep. Yes. Yeah. 
Yep, sure. So if we go back to, to Zechariah 14, it talks about God fighting for his people against the enemies of his people. Uh, as, as we turn to the New Testament, I, I see there are three chief enemies against Christians. Uh, the world, the flesh and the devil. Uh, all those things uh, seek to stop us uh, having a right relationship with God, living God's way. Um, as Jesus said, he said I've, in John chapter 10, I've come that you may have life and have it to the full. Following Jesus is the way to, to human flourishing, to human fruitfulness. And uh, the reason that Zechariah 14 is alluded to, um, it imports the idea of God rescuing his people against his enemies. And we read elsewhere um, uh, in, in, in Jesus' words that, well, you're going to have trouble in this world. Um, if people persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. Um, he doesn't promise us an easy life, but he guarantees us a hopeful life and he's given us his life, uh, which allow, I join all those dots and I see that it's actually got an eternal horizon on this promise, not a, um, a here and now. Um, d- d- does that help? Um, yeah, Jesus is talking about pie in the sky when you die, not steak on your plate while you wait. Pat. Yeah, good, good, good. Yeah, if you believe, you'll receive whatever you ask for in prayer. Um, I, I, I think we are uh, more likely here in the north side of Sydney to be timid. Because, um, you know, when we've got problems in life, well, we solve it with our credit card. Um, just put down some money and the problem goes away and we find ourselves putting our trust in silver and gold rather than in the God who saves. And the problem with that is when we come to the most significant problem at all in our loved one's lives, it's where they're going to spend forever. Silver and gold cannot save. It's only the precious blood of Jesus. And we need to pray with confidence that God is well able to save his own, to pray bold and specific prayers that our family members might be saved. Now, one of my children has walked away from Jesus, kills me and my wife. We pray that God might win her back to to himself. I want to encourage you to pray bold and specific prayers in light of verse 22. Lord God, would you please, please woo and win back and save, insert name here, Let's pray bold prayers as a church that God would move mountains and turn the the, the cultural tide of Northbridge, turn the tide of our city in, in Pride Week, that people wouldn't revel and glory in sin, but they would glory in the Saviour. I'll stop there. That was a short question. I was starting to go on a bit. We'll call it a night and we can talk more after the service.